Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. As we were singing that, I felt like I could just hear the Lord's heart crying out that where are the Jonathans? Where are the people convinced of my goodness and my might and my power that look at a problem and say, let's go see if the Lord will do something. For he's able to save by many or by few, but convinced that the Lord would do something if they would just begin to walk towards the problem. And, I, and I'll say this in like, I, I, this is, I want, like, take this as the best encouragement you can, that he really is that big, that mighty, and that strong, but he's in you. And, and, and sometimes he needs us to say, there's a problem. Why don't we go see what God wants to do about that? And to actually go towards it rather than run from it. Jonathan didn't have a brilliant plan. He just had a faith in the Lord. Sometimes we're so busy trying to figure out what the brilliant plan is that God's saying, why don't you just go and trust me? Quit singing that you trust me and actually trust me. Quit singing I'm mighty and big and actually prove that you believe it by the way that you live. It's great to sing this song, but let that song stir your heart into something more than just a song. So Father, I just pray that that we, would, that we would grab a hold of this thing, God, that, that we wouldn't just sing about how big and mighty and strong you are, that we, you wouldn't just be stories that we read in the Word about who you were, God, but it would be a revelation of who you are and who you want to be. Father, I just pray that you would put that, that confidence inside of us, that we would be people who look at problems and see it as opportunity for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes all you need is just a little bit of confidence in him and somebody next to you that doesn't doubt you. You see that armor bearer that says, sounds good, do it, I'm with you. It wasn't a brilliant plan. Like, think about it. How brilliant was his plan? The Philistines are up there. They have a bigger army than us. They're, they're bigger than we are. They have the high ground. They have the, you know, in, in, in military and in worldly thinking, they have all the advantage. They have numbers. They have the high ground. They're bigger. They have more weaponry. They have every reason why they should be feared. Jonathan has one. Why he shouldn't. Why don't we go up there? And if they do this, then we'll know the Lord is with us. If they say that, then we'll know that he's not. You know that there was never a time you can find in the word where somebody stepped out in faith that the Lord wasn't with them? Now, when they stepped out in their own confidence, when they stepped out in their own strength, when they counted men when they weren't supposed to count men, there were times then that the Lord wasn't with them. But when people simply stepped out in faith, trusting him and not themselves, there was never a time he wasn't with them. And sometimes I think we just, we, we need to get back to, he said, unless you become like a child. Remember what it was like when you were a child and you just believed your dad could do anything and it didn't really matter if you knew how or why, you didn't have to have it figured out. If he said he could do it, you're just like, my dad could do that. Even things he didn't say he could do, you exaggerated him, you know? Our dads probably heard us talking, we're like, oh, <laughs> I hope they never ask me to. <laughs> you just had this belief, like he could do anything. And it wasn't because you had it all figured out. It's because you trusted him. 
Maybe, maybe we should lean a little less on having everything figured out and a little more on he really is big. He really is great. He really is mighty. He really has called me to walk in this life and to, to, to live the way he's called me to live. And he really does have a plan for my life. And it's a good plan. And it's to bring his kingdom wherever I go. And, and he said the knowledge of his glory would cover the earth, even as the waters cover the sea. And that means that there has to be some way that the knowledge of the glory of God is displayed to the or the, the glory of God is displayed to the world so that the knowledge of it can come. And that's us. That's you and me. Um, we're going to take up our offering right now. I just encourage you, just write that huge check and be like, see if the Lord will bless it. I promised I wasn't like building up to say that. <laughs> but no, uh, we're going to take up our offering and because um, we really are believing for something way beyond our ability from the Lord. We, we, we need a bigger building. We're, we're running out of room. People are leaving second service every week because we don't have room for kids or we don't have seats in the sanctuary. And, and, and I know that the Lord is not sending people here for us to not be able to steward and to be able to receive them. And so we're, we're, we're working on everything on our end that we possibly can, but we're trusting him for things on, on his end that, that are far beyond our ability. Um, and so, God, I just thank you for that. I thank you that, that you know our needs, Father. You also know our abilities. And so, Father, I pray if there's an area of ability that we need to grow in before we can be entrusted with more, Father, that we would see it and that we would grow in it. God, I pray that, that we would humbly seek you as a church family, as leadership, God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as people who firmly believe that this is our family. God, that we would humbly seek you and ask you, what is it that you're asking of me so that you can give the more? I thank you for that, God. I thank you that you've blessed us, God, so far beyond already what we could think or ask. And we just believe that you'll continue to do that. Uh, we trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, <clears throat> I think there's... I think there's a lack of both maybe right now in the world of, of people who have these crazy ideas that aren't afraid to voice them. Like we have the crazy ideas. You've had them, you know them, like you've had these crazy ideas, and, but, but something's told us that to voice that for some reason we've been taught by the world or by disappointment or by our own lack of experience or by what people around us have said or, or just society has taught us that you can't actually say those things. And, and I think a big part of that is because we don't have people around us that we trust that would say something like, hey, if that's what's in your heart to do, do it. I'm with you. Like, why do you think Jonathan had the confidence to say to his armor? Do you think that was the first time he said something crazy to his armor bearer? I doubt it. I bet there were many times where he looked over at his armor bearer and he said something that the Lord put into his heart, and I bet the armor bearer's response every time was the same. Do all this in your heart. I'm with you. I trust you. I'll help you. I'll go with you. And so I, I, as much as I think he's calling us to be people who would voice the crazy ideas he puts in our heart. I think he's also calling us to be those people that when others voice their crazy ideas, rather than finding every reason why it won't, we become the people that look at them and say, hey, if that's really what God's put in your heart, I'm with you. 
Because, like, what's the worst that happens? You fail? (laughs) Who hasn't failed? Who hasn't got it wrong? Who hasn't struck out? Like, what if, you know, if you were a kid and you had that philosophy, the first time you strike out at baseball, you hang the bat up and you never play again. But you had someone there encouraging you. You had someone there who was teaching you. You had someone there who believed in you. Someone who said, you're better than that. You're capable of more than that. Give it another try. Practice and learn and grow. But more importantly, keep doing it. Keep trying. Because eventually you'll get it right. I, wanna, I, wanna, I really want to see us as a church family become those people that, just, when, that, pe- that, be, that are safe for people to share their dreams with. And not that we don't have wisdom and not that we don't say, hey, th- you know, that's, that's good, but perhaps. You know, if the Lord, Lord gives you wisdom, you know, there's nothing wrong with sharing wisdom and maybe showing something or saying something that maybe they haven't thought of. But never in a way to discourage people, but always in a way of making sure that if they are going to do this thing, that they've thought it through but not to discourage them from doing it. Just saying, hey, like, I'm with you. I'm for you. Um, what, have you thought about this? No? Well, let's pray about that. And whatever the case is, but be those people that are safe for people to share their dreams with rather than people who look for every reason why it couldn't work. For far too long, we, we've been, in the name of wisdom, we've been overly cautious as people. You look through the Bible and you find cautious living from people that were following Jesus. It's pretty tough. You have Peter and John walking along, getting ready to go pray. Then you have a man who's begging for money, yelling out to them from across. It's a crowded room. You guys understand, like, so much of what, of what happened in the Word happened in front of a bunch of people in a large crowd where it wasn't like this safe thing where, like, oh, I'll go over there and I'll pray, and if nothing happens, no one will ever know. And I think there was something to that where it's like I'm willing to step out in public and I'm willing to do what you've called me to do, and I'm going to trust that you'll honor it so much so that I'll do it in front of a bunch of people where I risk something. Like, there's actually risk involved there. They weren't alone in their room going, okay, I'll pray for you, and then going home and praying in the quiet of their room and never knowing if anything happened or not. And this guy's asking for money, and Peter and John look at him and said, we don't have that, but what we have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And it says, and as they said that, they reached and they pulled him up, and as they pulled him up, his ankles were straightened. There was something more than just saying it. There was actually an action that was required. And in the doing, God comes and does what only God could do. And it says his ankles were straightened and he was healed. I think that the world is looking for a church that will say the right thing, but will also put the action to it to prove that we actually believe what we're saying. That's risk. That's risk. That's if if God doesn't do what he said he would do through us. This man falls on his face and a crowded room looks and laughs. But you know the truth of the matter is, is, so what? What did you lose by acting on what? What have you ever lost by doing what you feel like God's called you to do in the moment? Are you worried for his sake? Don't be. He's not. Because he knew full well that we would get it wrong when he told us to go and try to do it right. He was okay with that. Well, what if I don't get it right? It's okay as long as your heart is to get it right. Like, look at the disciples. How many times did they do things, their, their heart was to do the right thing, and he would just gently correct them? They want to kill a whole town. 
because they won't listen to Jesus. Like, have you ever preached the gospel to someone and they just, they just won't listen or they just won't hear it and you leave and you're kind of frustrated and you're like, God, we just open your e- their ears, you know? That's amazing compared to their response. Their response was, God, should we ask for fire to come down and kill them all? <laughs> they asked him. Jesus, do you want us to call down fire on the city? And he doesn't like, he doesn't retire them from ministry. And he doesn't say, you evil, wicked, murderous people. He just looks at them and says, you guys, you don't understand the spirit that you're of. And so, yeah, I, I think we could stand to, to live with a little more risk in our lives. I think we could stand to, to believe him for something more than just what we've seen because he wants to do abund- exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. If you've already seen it, then pretty much you could think of it or you could ask for it. So that means there's things out there that he wants to do that you haven't seen him do yet. And maybe he puts something inside your heart. You realize that Jonathan didn't have the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer when he said, let's go up there. See, we forget that sometimes because we've read the book. And so the first time you hear the story as a kid, from that point on, every time you read that story, you already know the outcome. So what he's doing makes sense because you've seen it. You realize he lived it in real time with no story of what God was going to do. That's why I love when people are like, well, if God's doing that, then, then, then show me where it says it in the Word. I can show you where it says in the Word that Jesus did so many things that weren't recorded. And, and here's the thing. is He says, why do you look to the former things? See, I'm doing a new thing. That means there's something he wants to do in you and through you that you can't look back on and see. You can see the nature. You can see the character. You can see the heart behind it. And you can see the why behind it. But there's a good chance that what he wants to do in your life, you haven't seen before. I was thinking about I'll transition smoothly into the message here. <laughs> I was thinking a lot about what we reproduce. And I, and I, remember, um, I remember a while ago, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Mark chapter 10. We're going to get there in a minute, um, I think. But, but I remember a while ago, I was reading the, the, about the armor of God, and, and, it, and it says, first thing that you do is you cover, gird your loins with truth. And I, I read that one line, and I was getting ready to read the next one because that's what we do when we read the Bible sometimes. You know, you know you're at the armor of God, so you're already thinking about the next one as you're reading this one. Like, I would encourage us, even this summer, as we're reading the word, like slow down and don't be so like in your mind already knowing what's about to be said that you miss what's being said in the line that you're reading. Because I do that sometimes, and none of you maybe, but I do that. I'm like, therefore, put on the armor of God, the full armor of God, and girding your loins with truth, and your breastplate with righteousness, and I'm already thinking about the sword, which is the last thing he talks about, and I haven't even finished reading the first thing. And I read that, and I thought, why did he say to the first thing that we're to do is to cover our, our loins with, with truth? And I, I had this thought because he wants the areas of our lives that reproduce to be touched by truth. 
so that what we're reproducing is actually true. And then I started thinking about in the Garden of Eden when they sinned and they covered their reproductive organs with something that they fashioned with their own hands. And he wouldn't let that stand, even though they were covered, because what he didn't want is he didn't want them reproducing something that they had made with their own hands. He wanted them to reproduce something that he made with his hands. Because we reproduce what we believe is true. Not necessarily truth. We reproduce what we believe is true. Because what we have, we give. And so he didn't want the story that they passed on about who he was and what he was like when they sinned to be, we messed up, we fell short, we sinned, we did what God calls not to do. And so we created with our own hands a covering to cover our shame and our nakedness. He wanted the story that got reproduced and passed on to be that he didn't run from us in our sin. He actually came looking for us the way he did every other day. You realize sin didn't change God. And he didn't expect it to change them because he asks when they're not where they were supposed to be, Adam, where are you? He has an expectation. Do you think he, he like at this point, is ignorant to the fact that they've sinned? He knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. That means long before she took a bite of the fruit. That means before the fruit was forming on the tree, he saw the day she would take a bite of it. He wasn't ignorant to the fact that they had sinned. I think the reason why he came and did what he always did on that day was because he wanted them to know, this doesn't change my heart for you. This doesn't change my desire for you. This doesn't change my wanting to be with you. I don't like that. And I'll cover that and I'll deal with that, but I love you. And I'm not going to run and I'm not going to hide. And I don't want you running and hiding either. And I can see that this thing that you've made with your own hands doesn't give you confidence to stand before me, so I'll make something with my hands so that you know that it's good enough, so that you will dare to come and stand before me. Because all he's ever wanted is his people to come before him unashamed, boldly and confidently. And I, I was, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, man, maybe this is why God brought them into the wilderness out of Egypt. Because they have 400 years of stories of God's failure that have shaped their view of God. And so he has to take them from where they are, and he's taking them to a place where he wants them. But in the meantime, there's this little transitional period, it was supposed to be a little transitional period, that's why Jesus came to make the crooked path straight so that you and I didn't have to wander around like those who died in the wilderness, but we can actually pass through and enter to where he wants us to be in the straightest path possible. Jesus does in 40 days what it took them 40 years. He goes into the desert alone, trusts and obeys the Lord, gets clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit, and leaves. He didn't go into the wilderness to dry up and die. God hasn't called you away from where you were because he wants you to die in the transition. He's called you away so that he can show you and teach you something so that he can bring you to where he wants you and your truth that you believe and what you know about him is actually true and lines up with who he really is. 
So, so he's taking them from a place, think about this, the children of Israel, are, 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 they are his people, and they're enslaved in Egypt, and so every day they, eat, they work for what they eat, and they only get a percentage of what they worked for anyways, because they serve a master who has an insatiable appetite, who no matter what they do, he wants more. You guys wouldn't know anybody like that. But Pharaoh is a, is a cruel taskmaster that enslaves them and that uses them and lives at their expense and is willing to kill them to get what he wants. And he's saying, listen, this is what you have done. This is what you've known. This is the way that you've lived. You've lived by what? By the sweat of your brow will you eat. Meaning what? Everything that you've eaten from the point that Adam and Eve sinned until this point when I bring you into the wilderness, you've eaten because you've worked for it and you've earned it. And so your idea of God looks more like Pharaoh than it actually does the God of the garden. So I'm going to bring you out into the wilderness away from all that and I'm going to force you into a position where you see me for who I really am. And every day, you'll eat something that you didn't produce, that was given to you by my goodness. And in my goodness, I won't even let that last more than a day, because I want you to trust me the next day just as much as you trusted me this day. Because what would happen if you went from somewhere where every day you were uncertain if you would be able to eat to a place where there was an abundance of this thing called manna is you would be tempted to store it up because you still have a lot of that idea of what it's like to live based on your experience in Egypt that has to get taken out of you before he can bring you into a place where there's abundance. Because in, in Egypt, you didn't know if you were going to get to eat tomorrow because maybe Pharaoh would have a temper tantrum and say, don't feed the servants because we're falling behind. Don't feed the slaves because we need to store up more grain. Withhold their meal. You never knew if you were going to eat tomorrow. So the second you get brought into a place where there's more than what you can eat in one sitting, the temptation would be to try to store it up because you don't know if that trustworthy God today is going to be the trustworthy God tomorrow. And he's bringing them into this place simply so he can teach them about who he is. And so for a time, they go from in, into this place where they have just what they need. Think about it. He, he just covers the bare minimum necessities of life for a season. He's their shelter. He's their warmth. He's their protection. He's their food. He's everything that they need. They can do nothing. They're in a desert. They can't even build shelter over their heads. Why did he call them into a desolate place? Because he didn't want them building with their hands. He wanted them trusting him for everything. So he brings them to a place where they lack the ability to do what it is that he wants to do for them. But he didn't bring them there to stay. He brought them there so that he could teach them who he was and what he was like. So that then when he brought them into the promised land, which was his plan for them, where they had houses that they didn't build and vineyards that they didn't plant and wells that they didn't dig, those things wouldn't be what they found their trust in and what they placed their, their, their faith in. It would be him so then he could entrust those things to them and they would steward them rather than be owned by them. And I, I was thinking about that 
that thought, and I thought, how many times in our lives, and this isn't just the all or nothing thing, has God wanted us to come into a wilderness season where he wants us to give something up so that he can teach us what he's really like, so that he can entrust us with what he desires for us? Because the way that we believe right now, listen, it could be because it was passed down from generation to generation. They had 400 years of story. Sure, they had the promise of a Messiah, but want to bet after about 250, 300 years, more of the stories were about God's failure to send him than the excitement about him coming? You start praying for something and you start out so excited about what God's going to do. You've seen it in his word. You've, you've been encouraged by people. You've, you've, you've heard, you've learned, you've, you felt like you have a word from God. And you start praying for something and you start out really excited. But after years, what comes out of your mouth when you're talking about it usually is more of the disappointment of what hasn't happened than the excitement about what you're expecting he's going to do. And what we believe sometimes is more shaped by disappointment than it is by the word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Sometimes we're living by bread alone, by natural things, rather than by the word that proceeded from his mouth. And so I, I thought about this in my own life where I've seen where God has called me from a place into a place that looked like a wilderness, but it really wasn't for the sake of me being miserable. It wasn't for the sake of me um, um, being drying up and dying. It was because there was actually something on the other side of that wilderness he wanted to entrust me to. Uh, and trust to me, but first he had to teach me something about himself so that when I got what he wanted for me, I could actually steward it the way he wanted me to steward it. I, I grew up with a ton of friendships. I, I always had friends around me. It was, I'm, I'm a pretty outgoing, friendly person. You know, the older I get, I get a little more introverted. <laughs> I was a flaming extrovert in my 20s. In my, now that I'm in, solidly into my 40s, and one year in, I, I find myself a little more introverted, a little more needing alone time in between the times of being with people. Before, I, I didn't need any alone time. Uh, I, I, I would medicate my ability to sleep so that I didn't have to sleep so that I could continue doing the stuff that I was doing. And, and then I, I, I got born again and I quit the lifestyle that I had lived, and I moved to a place where I only knew a couple people, which was here. And I remember the job that I took. I, I work, before I worked in the kitchen with one of my best friends, and we were surrounded by people, and you interacted with people all day long. I was a, I was a line cook in a restaurant where you actually could converse with the customers, cook, and one of my best friends was the line cook with me. And so even at my job, I was never actually alone. I was constantly surrounded by people. I was constantly surrounded by friends. And then I moved here, and I no longer had the lifelong friendships that I had grown up with, which I had a ton of them. And, and even the job that I took, I was doing vinyl siding, and I was the guy who would just put the siding on up as high as you could reach off the ground, and then a crew would come behind me and finish it off and do the, the metal work. And, and I was alone all day doing that. And it, it could have looked like a wilderness, and it, it maybe was a bit of a wilderness, but it taught me something during that time when it removed my ability to constantly be around people, and it forced me to a place of actually having to learn what friendship with him was like. And it wasn't that he never wanted me to have friendships again. It was that there was something he wanted to do in my heart so that if I ever came to a place where a friend betrayed me, it didn't ruin me. Because here's the thing, if we never go through a period of time where we learn what it's like to be without and be content with just him, whenever we, whatever we have, if it's ever taken from us, we'll be ruined. 
But if you've gone through a season where you've, everything's been stripped away and you've found yourself alone with him and you find contentment with just him, then he can trust you with all kinds of other things because they're not the reason for your joy and losing them isn't the reason for your misery. Because you've learned, like Paul, the secret of being content, whether in much or in little, is that in all things, I have him. And so, but I, was, I thought about this and I thought, man, there was a season of my life coming. And I did, I walked through a season where I was betrayed by somebody that I considered to be a great friend. And, I, and it's happened a few times afterwards, but it hasn't ruined me. And it's not me being fake and saying, oh, I don't care. It's me saying, I care about that. And yeah, that bothers me. But the truth of the matter is my happiness isn't because of that relationship. The joy that I have is because I have him. And whether people abandon me or stay, I'll always have him. And so you can learn this in one area of your life. And that's why I say, I think we go through these seasons many times over again in our lives. Because I think there's always places he's looking to and saying, you know, what you believe there isn't really just because of what I've said. You've got some tradition that's been passed down from generations. You've got some disappointment or some expectation that's been unfulfilled. Or you've got some, some bad teaching. Or, or you've got where somebody modeled something for you that was claiming to be following me, and they actually weren't following me in that area of your life. There's something in that in your thinking that doesn't strictly come from what I've spoke to you and because of who I am. And I want to take you out of that place. And I'm going to bring you to a place, and maybe you're going to be alone for a little bit. Maybe you're going to have to leave that stuff behind. But it's because I want to actually give you more of that, but I can't give you more when the little that you already have is not being stewarded the way that I want it to be. So you look at the rich young ruler, Mark chapter 10. I, I, I told you we would get here. Oh, I knew it. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Everybody knows this story. Chapter 10, verse 17 says, As he was setting out on a journey, he being Jesus, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That used to trouble me. Why did he ask him, Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. He's saying to the men, You can't just hear my words as being a good teacher or you won't be able to accept them. You have to understand that I'm God. He says, Why do you call me good? Either I'm God or I'm not good. He says, no one is good but God alone. He's forcing this man to a, to a decision of, who do you believe that I am? If you really believe that I'm good, then it must mean that, there's, that I'm God. And if not, then I'm not good. Quit calling me good. At some point in our lives, we have to decide who he is. Is he just a good teacher or is he actually God? Who, when he spoke, the sun came roaring forth from his mouth. Who, at, at the mention of his name, the demonic realm trembles. Like, is he God, or is he just a good idea and a teacher that gives me a system of living that blesses me and benefits me and makes life a little bit easier? Because some of the things he's going to call us to, we won't say yes to if he's just a good teacher. We'll only say yes to them if we believe that he's actually God. I, tr- I promise. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, see, he's still just a teacher. Because he's just a teacher, he has the ability in his own heart and in his mind to say yes or no to whatever it is the teacher is about to say to him. I 
I think in some ways, if we're not careful, we will see the kindness of God and the goodness of God and come to an understanding of his love for us. And even the fact that Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. For a servant doesn't know the master's business, but I've made things known to you. And if we're not careful, we lose the actual reverence of realizing when he speaks to us that it's not just a good idea, it's not just a good teacher, it's not just a friend, it's the Lord speaking to us. And that gives us some kind of laterality in our minds of I can take this, I can leave this, I can say yes, I could say no, because we're not seeing it as God speaking to us, we're seeing it as anything other than that. And even if he fills that role sometimes, was Jesus the teacher at times? Yes, he taught people at times, but that's not who he is. He's God. So he says, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking back at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. See, we hear this and we think to ourselves about people that we know or people that we've heard of that are wealthy, and we think, man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not them because do you realize like every one of us that's hearing these words is wealthy? Like you're in the top 10, probably in the top 5, and maybe in the top 2% of the world as far as wealth goes. The fact that you live in a home that has more than one room the fact that you have, most of us have more than one vehicle to drive. The fact that most of us have more food than we could eat in a day if we tried to eat it all in a day. The fact that we have air conditioning, never mind televisions and computers and internet and everything else that we have. The fact that, that, that we don't have, um, that we have access to, to healthcare and that we have, it makes us among the wealthiest in the world. Most Americans live in the top 10% of wealth in the world almost all. And so realize that like he's not talking about the evil rich people. He's talking about anybody who has anything that would be hard for them to give up to follow him. And and this isn't like a this isn't like a blanket statement. He's not saying the way to eternal life is for every person to give everything they have to the poor and sell everything that they have and come and follow me. Some people have taken that. Like some people have said said, well, Jesus said to to just as many people to sell their possessions and give to the poor as he said that you must be born again. So why do we preach born again and not sell your possessions and give to the poor? Because he said specifically to one man, here's the thing that's keeping you from following me. He said to another man, any man, no man can see the kingdom unless he's born again. One is a general statement that's true for everybody. One is a specific statement that targets a certain thing that a man is holding on to. And believe this, Jesus would say the same thing to anybody today whose wealth was keeping them from following him, but he might look at somebody else and it might be a relationship that they have to give up. It might be a social status that they have to give up. It might be an image that they've created. It might be anything else because if there's anything that's keeping you that you wouldn't give to follow him, then that's, that's what's Lord, not him. Anything you have to check with before being obedient to Jesus, that's Lord. So when Jesus says something to you, if the first thing you do is you check what this person's going to think, that person's Lord, not Jesus, because you're more worried about their opinion than you are obedience to Jesus. Just being honest. 
And so they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Now they're thinking, why, why do they say then who can be saved if he's only talking about the ultra rich? Because they realized they had stuff. Then who can be saved? Look at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Then Peter, I love uh, just Peter's personality as you read through the Bible. Like realize that these guys were all in process of following Jesus. He wasn't St. Peter in stained glass at this moment. He hadn't read his own stories. He hadn't wrote letters to the church yet. He's just a young guy following Jesus and being changed and transformed by him. He's actually on his way to denying that he even knows who Jesus is to a little girl around a campfire. That's part of his process. Peter says, Lord, we've given up everything to follow. Peter was not going to miss an opportunity to be like, Peter began to say to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. Listen to what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left his house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last to be first. A few things about this, and one, one we've pointed out before, but you, you notice that Jesus gives the rich young ruler truth that offends him. And he doesn't follow it up with the explanation that he gives a few minutes later to Peter. He says, this is Jesus. This is not a prosperity gospel preacher saying this. These are red letters in your Bible if you have a red letter edition. He says, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. That's not a prosperity gospel preacher trying to get you to give money to him by making some outrageous promise. This is Jesus he says, nobody's given this up except that they would receive a hundred times that much in this life, along with persecutions. You know where a lot of the persecutions come from when God gives you a hundred times what you've given up? You can do an internet search and look up your favorite pastor. And it'll usually be people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus that are persecuting someone who God's given a hundred times what they've given up without realizing that what they've given up. I'm just saying you have no idea how someone got what they got. I think if people were really honest at the deep, bitter root of every single bit of it, there's a jealousy that says, if they have more than my acceptable level of what's comfortable for a Christian to have, they have too much. And it's funny how as we get more, our idea of what is comfortably acceptable seems to move. Is there a line? Probably for every person. But guess what? That line's probably different for different people, and it's up to them to ask the Lord where it's at.
God had no problem looking at Abraham and saying, I'm going to make you a wealthy man. God had no problem with Solomon being the richest man who ever lived. Maybe we should probably stop having so many problems with so many people and trying to figure out what they should or shouldn't be doing, what they should or shouldn't have, and worry about what's Jesus asking of me. Because there's a promise here in the word, literally, that says that they would receive a hundred times. Here's the thing, though. Why didn't he go tell the rich young ruler that when the rich young ruler turned away sad? He told the rich young ruler, he said, just give up, sell, give away everything that you have, and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler becomes saddened by this and walks away sad. And Jesus doesn't chase him down and say, but wait, if you do that, you'll get a hundred times. Why? Because he doesn't want us giving away our stuff for what we'll receive. He wants us giving away what he asks us to give away because of obedience. It's not a formula. It's not like the stock market. It's not an investing formula. Where this, Jesus wasn't saying this to Peter and them. Because what he's saying is, Peter says, well, then who can be saved? He's basically saying, we know a bunch of people who have a bunch of stuff. And Jesus is saying, listen, how do you know they haven't already given up on what, everything that they've been asked to give up? And what you see them have is actually a hundred times what they gave up to begin with. And here you are worried about them having a hard time getting into the kingdom. And you don't even realize it's because they gave up everything to come into the kingdom that they have what they have. It's, it's in there. It's in red letters. Because he doesn't want to be a formula. He doesn't want you to reduce him down to, well, Jesus said, if I give this, I'll get a hundred times. And now you're sitting back and judging whether or not he's truthful based on what you've received in return. That's the paradox that we find in the word. You know, there's these places where it says, if you would humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, that he would in due time exalt you. But if you're humbling yourself to be exalted, you're going to be disappointed because you didn't actually humble yourself. You, you, you acted humble because you wanted to be exalted, but wanting to be exalted is about as far from humility as possible. But here's the other thing. In the church, we're pretty okay with people humbling themselves, but sometimes we have a hard time when God exalts them. I didn't plan to preach this stuff when I woke up this morning, and then it just started pouring into my heart as I, as I was getting ready for this morning. But I'm just saying, like, Peter, I think this is why this is in here, is, is Peter saying, Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter into pastor to have a needle than to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And all of a sudden, Peter starts thinking about people he knows that are wealthy. Going, well, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus' response is, I'm telling you, nobody that gives up what I ask them to give up for my sake and for the gospel's sake, except that they will receive in this life a hundred times the things I ask them to give up. I think what he's saying is, you guys, listen. You're looking at what people have and judging whether or not those are the people I'm talking about. I'm looking at what has them. And that's how I'm deciding who it is that I'm talking about. It's the one who walks away depressed when I ask them to give up something that actually is going to miss out on the kingdom, on what I have for them. And so as I was reading all this, and I was thinking about, what if, what if God really does have an unlimited supply? And I'm not, I'm not just talking about money and financial stuff, honestly. There's things that are way more, like Revelation. 
I'd way rather have revelation from him than I would rather have anything else in this world. To hear him speak and to have him open up the scriptures and show you his heart, I'd way rather have that than any check that someone could write. But, but what if he has an unlimited supply and he's looking for those who he can entrust that if he asks them to give it up, they'll give it up. They'll come away into a little bit of a season where they have just what they need rather than an abundance and they learn to trust him and they learn to be, for him to be their source so that when he takes them into a place of giving them more than they need, they actually can be entrusted with it because they've come to a place where that's not what they're living for. What, what, if, what, what if he's just asking you to give up a relationship because he wants you to come away with him and be alone with him for a while? so that he can then entrust you with a relationship, and that relationship won't be Lord, he will be. What if he's asking you to just to give up that hobby, that time, that habit, that money, those possessions, that idea, that belief, well, what if he's just asking you to give that up so that you can actually come to a place of just being alone with him for a time apart from that so that something can be established in your heart so that when he brings you to the place that he has for you and he gives you what it is he desires to give you, it doesn't become Lord because he is. This is what he's doing with the, with the children of Israel. They're in a place where they have no idea what he's like because for so long Pharaoh has been God. And they have all kinds of disappointments. You see it. As soon as they get out into the desert and something doesn't go the way they want to, they turn their back on him, they turn their back on Moses, and they turn back to worshiping idols just like they did in Egypt. The second that manna starts to taste a little bit old, they start longing to go back to Egypt so that they can have lemon and garlic. He's bringing them away from what they knew into a time where all they have is just what they need so that he can then bring them into a promised land flowing with milk and honey and an abundance, so that when they get into the land of milk and honey and abundance, what was established in the wilderness stays, and he can add to them everything he wants to add to them, and it doesn't ruin them, and it doesn't become the reason that they don't need him. It becomes the reason that they thank him and understand their need for him. How many of us have been this side of, a, of something he has for us because... We don't dare to step into that middle place of giving this up, but he's asking us to. And I thought about this. Jesus goes into the wilderness and comes out filled with the Spirit of God and the power of the Spirit of God. And then he finds people and he takes what he came out of that wilderness season with and he actually imparts it to them and they walk in the power of what he received through his obedience says then he sent them out in his name and he gave them the power over demons and scorpions and snakes and said go heal the sick raise the dead preach the gospel of the kingdom has come near to you this day what's he saying my obedience and what i received from him in, in in through that obedience is something that i can actually give to you if you'll actually obey what would, what happened to paul paul gets taken from where he is he has to give up everything he's learned he says i count it all as lost what's he saying god asked me to step away from my position He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. From my entitlement, I was born to the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. 
as to the law, I was perfect. He's asking him to give up his reputation. He's asking him to give up his, his position. He's asking him to give up his empowerment. He's asking him to give up all these things, and he takes them away. Where? To the Arabian desert. Imagine that, into a desert season in the wilderness. And then he entrusts something to him, which is the gospel, the new covenant. And then Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. That's a lot of twos. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Let's look at what he says here. He says, The things which you heard, have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What's he saying? I was willing to step away from everything that I had and be alone with him and receive something from him that now I can actually give away to other people because I have no longer have a fig leaf around me. I've had my loins girded with truth. So when I reproduce that in other people, that reproduces truth that was given to me by him and not a fig leaf that was passed down from generation to generation. And the only way you get that is by being willing to step away from what it is that you knew and step into a place of nothing but him so that he can then entrust you and take you out of that desert and take you into the place that he has for you and he can entrust you with the things that he desires for you to have. How many of us are standing on this side of the wilderness afraid to go because we don't believe that what he has on the other side is better than what we have on this side? See, it's easy when it's Egypt. It's easy. I'll just cl- I'll close with this. It's easy when, 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 it's, when it's slavery and beatings and torture and rape and murder and persecution and starvation. It's easy when he says, come out of Egypt. You don't have to trust a whole lot to say whatever is out there is better than what's here. That's the easy place. Every one of the children of Israel ran out of there when he called them out. Every one of them. Why? Nobody, want, nobody worries and nobody cares about giving up something like that. That's the easy time to go out into the wilderness with him. What about when it's take the good things that you have and leave all of that to come find me? That's when people walk away sad. Because they don't trust that what he has for them on the other side is greater than what they have on this side. And so I, I, I don't like when we make things an all or nothing because if, if everything boils down to simply have I said yes to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, then we miss sometimes that he says my people perish for lack of knowledge. He's not saying people that I don't know that I'm going to say on that last day, depart from me, I never knew you are perishing for lack of knowledge. He says, my people, people he knows, people who are following him are perishing. There's parts of their lives that are being destroyed that are perishing because of a lack of knowledge or because of a lack of denying the knowledge that has come. Because we either have an ignorance or we have a willful disobedience to what's been said. And he said, my people are perish- My people are on that side of this wilderness, unwilling to step into the wilderness because they're unwilling to leave behind the things that they have because they don't believe that where I'm calling them to is better than where they've been. They don't trust me the way I want them to trust me. And so we hold tightly on this side going, I don't want to step into there because to step into there means I have to let go of this. And he's in the middle going, just step. Why? Because he doesn't want to have to bribe us into trusting and obeying him. He wants us to trust him and obey him because we trust him and because we love him. That's why he doesn't go chase the rich young ruler down and be like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait. I'm about to write the next verses. 
stick around. It gets better. He doesn't say, he does, there's no record that he went after the rich young ruler and said, wait a minute, you don't understand. Wait till you hear what I'm about to tell the disciples. Then it will make sense. And then you will have no problem giving up what I'm asking you to give up. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that for us a lot of times. He doesn't want to have to tell us, oh, would, Roy, I'm telling you, if you would just step away from this, you'd find this, and then that would make this, and it'd be so much better. Because then I'm not acting in faith. I'm acting in, in response to something that I want versus in some, response to something that he wants. And then my obedience is based on how good is the promise rather than trusting him. And now I'm standing on this side of the wilderness, and before I'll step into that wilderness area and let go of this, I need you to show me what you're going to give me. But it's true. What's in it for me? What if, like the rich young ruler, he'll let us walk away from something he has for us rather than chase us down? and give us the rest without us being obedient to the first. Who were the people that got told the rest of that? Think about it. Who were the only ones that day that got told the rest of the equation? It was the people who had already given up everything to follow him. In front of other people who haven't done that yet, he says, here's what you have to do. Go sell it all, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. You'll find eternal life. To the people who had already done it, he says, hey, here's the part you don't understand yet. Your obedience puts you in the position to hear the rest of the story. But it was only to those who had already done the thing that was being asked of the rich young ruler that got the secret that would have made the rich young ruler gladly give away everything. So Father, I, I, I thank you for putting inside of us maybe even an excitement about these little wilderness things that you call us into, God, where we have to let go of what we've thought, what we've known, what we've liked, what we've built, what we've desired. God, that it's not always Egypt that you're calling us out of, that sometimes it's actually good things that you want for us that you're calling us to step away from because you have better things. Father, I pray that you would put inside of us an excitement to say, Father, if there's anywhere that what I believe, that what I've held on to, that what I have is less than, than truth, is less than you, is less than your best, God, would you call me away from that and into a season where you can teach me what it is that I need to know? so that I can be entrusted with the more. Not because I want to be entrusted with the more, God, but because I don't want to settle for less than what you have and you desire for me. Father, would you, would you make us those who would be faithful with little, but not for the sake of the much, but because you've called us to be faithful in the little. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs>